to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Happy New Year and welcome everyone. I'm Stacey Murray with the Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit agriculture applied research association based in Westlock, Alberta, and we're happy to provide an opportunity for people with similar interests to network and share ideas through evenings like this and our monthly Thursday night crop talks. I'm excited to have you join us for this networking evening with host Steve Kenyon of Greener Pastures Ranching for a fourth season. This session is being recorded and will be shared as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can find it by searching Wednesday Night Networking and the Gateway Research Organization. Be sure to check it out if you'd like to catch up on any of the past seasons. Everyone is welcome to ask questions of Dr. Kevin Float, our guest tonight, or Steve, by entering your question in the chat. I will take them in order, and I ask that everyone mutes their mic until it's your turn to talk. If you have a question and would prefer not to speak or you don't have a mic, just indicate that in the chat, and I'd be happy to read your question out for you. Don't forget to hang around at the end of the session for the After Networking Networking at 7.30. That's when we stop recording. Everyone can turn on their mics and video and conversation is free-flowing like coffee after an in-person workshop. So with that, we can get underway and I will turn it over to Steve to introduce our guest himself and tonight's topic. Hello, welcome to Win. We uh, have been having this going on for about uh, three years now. This is our fourth season. Really excited to have everybody on here. Quite a few years ago when COVID hit, we were missing out on the networking. So uh, we started up an event that was just networking. So there's not really any presentations. We get to visit and chit chat and don't uh, be afraid to stick around after the event is over tonight because then we have our after networking networking that uh, you can visit. And anybody listening to this on podcast, you missed out because sometimes the after networking networking gets a lot uh, lot more interesting. So uh, we don't want to kick anybody off of here. So we, we keep it open. Uh, really happy to have the Gateway Research Organization here as a partner, working together on this for quite a few years now. So uh, excited to have them here still and grateful for, for their uh, support, that's for sure. Tonight's guest speaker, uh, Dr. Kevin Float, and I say this with all, all the respect I possibly can to him. Uh, he's one of my bug nerds. Uh, when, when you're not very smart like me, you got to have a lot of nerds around that can you know, help you out. And I've got, you know, a bug nerd and uh, a plant nerd. And, uh, you know, I even got a couple of spelling nerds because I'm not very good at spelling. So, yeah, so Dr. Kevin Float is, is an expert on dung, dung pat and all the critters that are in the dung pat. So we're excited to have him here. And he has just come out with a new book, Cow Patty Critters. Uh, we'd like to really encourage people to take a look at that. It's quite interesting. I've got a copy myself. I've been thumbing through here. Uh, lots of information about all the critters that can can uh, be associated with the dung pat. I believe, I think I got this number from somewhere else, but Kevin can correct me later. There's about 400 different species that call the dung pat home. So they're a huge part of our ecosystem in, in a ranching operation. So without the dung pat, there's 400, ecos you know, or 400 critters that are not in that ecosystem. So definitely a, a very important part of our, our operation here. And I've been digging through the poop for a long time here. All my kids know how to dig through poop really well. So with that, I'd like to let Kevin kind of introduce himself and maybe talk a little bit about his topic and his book here tonight. And then we'll uh, open it up to questions for everybody. So thank you very much. Welcome, Kevin. Well, thank you very much for that, Steve. Again, just to emphasize, this is very informal, just having a friendly chit-chat. So I work for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, Alberta, and I've been working on dung insects for about 30 years. And when I started my job, 
I had a mandate to look at the pest flies that breed in cattle dung. And a lot of the other insects in cattle dung are beneficial. They feed on the pest flies. They also accelerate the breakdown of the dung. They incorporate the manure back into the soil. And as I started looking at these other insects, I realized how much I didn't know. So that was sort of the impetus for eventually writing a book, which uh, Steve mentioned came out earlier uh, in 2023. And it's called Cow Patty Critters. And you can simply find it by Googling cow patty critters and download it as a PDF. It's available in both English and in French. So tonight, I just want to open up the, uh, the doors to any questions you may have about critters and dung, and I'll try and answer them as best as I can. All right. Kevin, you want to just go in a little bit more detail about your book and what, uh, you know, if someone was to go get it, what, what, are, they, what are they going to get out of it? Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. So as you mentioned, I'm a bug nerd. I, uh, I wear that badge quite proudly. And I've looked at a lot of cow poop. So the book was written for people who are on the land and they see bugs in dung, but they don't know what they are. So it's written from a non-scientific perspective, what the insects are, why we should care, what they're doing. And it has information that'll help you identify some of them. So there's a lot of really high quality color photographs. There's diagrams. There's information on where you can find different species of uh, dung beetles. The focus is on Canada, but a lot of the insects we have in southern Canada are the same ones you're going to find in the, um, the, the, the northern tier states like uh, Montana, Idaho, North Dakota. The book should be broadly useful. And it has enough details in it so that if you want to dig more into the topic of dung insects, there's a lot of information that'll direct you to books and uh, more detailed sources to answer your questions. But in brief, it's a general guide for people who are just interested in dung insects. And then just for fun, I threw in a few fecal factoids. Uh, how far can you toss a, a dried cow chip, for example? Or when did cattle first come to North America? I mean, just to keep people's interest. Keep it a little entertaining. I have this question all the time. Everybody's asking about rollers. Do we have any roller dung beetles in Canada? Yeah, we do. So your background is very appropriate, uh, Steve. So there's a nice background of two dung beetles, uh, rollers. And rollers are a common term given to dung beetles that will come into a fresh cow pie. The adults, male and female, will work together to remove a parcel of that dung, form it into a ball, and they roll it away. They might roll it uh, a few feet away or, or, or 12 feet or more, a few meters, and then they'll bury it in a shallow uh, tunnel and they'll lay their eggs by the buried manure. So we do have rollers in uh, Canada. In southern Alberta, I've seen them around the Tabor area, native grassland, but I wouldn't say they're common. It just depends where you are. Different species of rollers tend to be more common as we go further south. They don't do quite as well in our cooler temperatures in Canada. Okay, just to add to that a little bit, just so everybody kind of knows, uh, three basic types of dung beetles. There's dwellers, there's tunnelers, and there's rollers. So we mostly have the uh, dwellers. They kind of hang around the dung pat and just, just below it and, and do the same thing. They deposit the larvae inside a ball of manure right underneath it. Tunnelers will dig down below. They'll go, you know, what, maybe two feet down leave that ball of manure down there with the larvae in it uh, for that uh, young to develop. And then the rollers, I mean, the most famous roller is, of course, the elephant dung beetle. 
right? He takes a big ball of dung. I mean, he doesn't take crap from just anybody, I tell you. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for poop puns. Okay, looks like we have a question or two in the chat there, Stacey. We do. Uh, Wace, if you want to unmute yourself, you can ask your question. Yeah, just curious on what the effects of Ibamec is on the, the dung insects. And uh, then Lynn Grant had kind of a similar question right behind me there. The timing that you give the Ibamec fall versus spring or winter. And uh, yeah, what are the effects on that? That's a really good question, and, and I can give you a good answer to that because we've done a lot of research in our lab on the effect of parasiticides applied to cattle and the toxicity of the residue that passes out into the dung of the treated animals and how that affects insects. So ivermectin was developed as both an uh, anti-nematode product as well as an anti-insect product to protect cattle, of course, from internal and external parasites. So because it was developed in part because it kills insects, it's no surprise that when residues are passed into cattle dung, it can kill insects in cattle dung as well. The duration that the residues are passed into the dung of the treated animal depends a little bit on the formulation. For example, if you're using uh, an injectable or a poron formulation of uh, Ivermec, our studies will show that toxic levels of residues can be passed out into the dung of the animal for perhaps uh, three months. A surprising length of time, but I want to emphasize that the residues affect different types of insects differently. So as Steve mentioned, there's perhaps in Canada 300 different species of insects that breed in cattle dung. Dung beetles as a group tend to be more resistant, so they will be affected by residues in dung of cattle that were treated maybe in the first month. And where you see an effect on other types of insects for up to three months after treatment, it's mainly uh, different types of flies, predaceous beetles, that sort of thing. For a product like um, long-range eprinomectin, we recently published a study on that. And if you treat your animals with long-range eprinex in the springtime into October, the cattle would be excreting toxic levels of residues that are sufficient to suppress numbers of at least some insects developing in the cow pie. Thank you, Kevin. I was just, uh, yeah, just wanted to add on there. So kind of uh, when you're, I guess in this climate, when a person's ivermectin more or less in the fall, that cow patty basically is uh, frozen throughout the winter or whatever, is that going to be an effect on them, dung beetles, I guess? Because they're probably looking for fresh stuff, not the dried up stuff come spring. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Uh, excellent point. So dung insects are mainly attracted to cattle dung. That is perhaps no older than two weeks, it depends a little bit on the on the weather. Some dung insects will only come into a cow pie within the first couple of days. Horn flies, for example, will usually lay their eggs in a cow pie that's perhaps just a couple of days old. Any older than that uh, is, is not attractive to the animals. Most dung beetles will lay their eggs in fresh dung that's perhaps a week old, no more than two weeks old. So if you were to treat uh, cattle with Ivermec in December, for example, and those cattle drop a pat in December, by the time spring rolls around, that pat is rock hard, and it's no longer attractive to really any dung insects. So it's really what is present in fresh dung that's going to affect the insects, uh, not what's present in dung that was deposited uh, during the winter months when insects are not flying around. Okay, can I get you to expand on that a little bit, Kevin? Um, when those dung pats are dried later on, then what breaks them? I mean, sometimes they do. It takes longer. But now what critters are in them? 
Yeah, so uh, I see some of our people tonight are joining us from the southern states. So in Canada, our spring is really, I would say, uh, mid-May is, is when the dung insects really start to fly. Peak activity is normally probably by the middle of June, and then it drops off and then picks up again later in, in August. So if you have a cow pie that's deposited when there's no insect activity, really what's going to break down that cow pie is going to be freeze-thaw cycles uh, and bacterial activity. So the bacteria is gradually going to work on breaking down the plant fiber in the dung. And then with enough time as the pie is sitting on the surface of the pasture, you'll have fresh new growth growing up. And the, you know, the plants will sort of push through the cracks and, and break up the dung a little bit that way. But in our areas, as pe most people would know, pies dropped in, um, say, February, they can take years to break down in our climate. But if that same pie is dropped in, in May, for example, when there's a lot of insect activity, it can be largely degraded in a couple of months. Yeah, I've actually had dung pets that are gone in, you know, a week to two weeks. In yeah. the bacteria, dung beetles, everybody, they just they just go at it real hard. The birds pick through it and it's basically gone. So the healthier your system, the healthier in your ecosystem, then the quicker that breaks down for sure. Exactly. Lori, you had a question. Hi, yes, good evening. Um, my question actually was about ivermectin as well. So thank you for already answering that one. I have another question though. Um, how can we see these critters with the naked eye? Like, can, can I, do I just have to get down on the ground and get real close? <laughs> or do I need a microscope? You know, um, really good point. So when I wrote the book, I have a section on how do you see these things? And uh, so some of the insects that are in cattle dung might be a millimeter in length. So about the size of the head of a pin, really tiny beetles. And they're mainly in there feeding on fungus. In Canada, the biggest dung insects we have would be beetles that are maybe one and a half, perhaps two centimeters in length, nothing bigger than that. In the U.S., they have uh, larger species of dung beetles. So some of the insects you can easily see with the naked eye. Other insects would appear like a little spot running around on your fingertip. So when I do my work, for some of the stuff, I have to have a microscope to identify what I'm looking at. But for other insects, they're quite distinct, and I can say, oh, yeah, I know what that dung beetle is. And I can put a name on it right away. Lori, I've seen lots of different critters in the dung pad. And I think the biggest reason why we don't see them is because nobody looks. Hairy roe beetle, predaceous ground beetles, uh, red velvet mite. Um, I, I, I never knew what any of these things were before. I'm not an entomologist. But when I find one, I see one, I send a picture off to a bug nerd. They tell me what it is. There's actually, if you don't have a, a Kevin in your back pocket... Um, there's actually a site, we have it in Alberta anyway, on the on Facebook page called Alberta Insects or Insects of Alberta or something. You can go on there and put a picture. There's 75 nerds that know exactly what it is. It's an awesome site. Uh, so if you just start looking and taking pictures, that's all it takes. And all of a sudden, you know what, what they are, right? Very easy to do. You don't have to be very, you know, educated and you can figure out what a lot of those critters are. So Dan, you are up next. Yeah, so I guess thanks for coming, joining. Uh, one question was, is there a difference in this dung species found in cow manure versus sheep manure? And actually, just my wife reminded me, or even pigs or chickens, or is there, how does that all work? Is it the same ones going after everything? Yeah, so uh, excellent question. For something like sheep and horses and cattle, if you had those in the same pasture, you'd probably be attracting the same species of insects. 
but maybe the ones that would be common in horse dung would not be as common in cattle dung or sheep dung. And it's a combination of um, how dry the fresh dung is. Like cattle dung, it comes out, it's about uh, 75% water when it comes out. Whereas something like uh, sheep and horse dung, it's drier. So partly it has to do with the water content of the dung pad. It also has to do with the, um, the odor or the smell that comes off of the dung. So in a cow pad, there's something like uh, 100 different chemicals that have been recorded associated with fresh cattle dung. And, you know, those chemicals produce a, a characteristic odor that comes out as a plume that's very attractive to certain types of insects. Whereas sheep dung or horse dung, it might produce a, an overlapping but different set of chemicals, which would be more attractive to other species. In extreme cases, for something like prairie dog dung, for example, or, or pocket gophers, they might have dung beetles specific just to that one type of animal. But the dung beetles that we find in cattle dung tend to be more generalist. And you, they could be attracted to, say, the odor coming off of um, fresh dog droppings. They might not feed in it, they might not breed in it, but they would be attracted to it. And then related to that, you know, the chemical plume that comes off a fresh cow pie, as the pie begins to age, it, it forms like um, a membrane or a skin, almost like saran wrap, and it starts to lock in the odor. And that's partly why older dung pads aren't attractive to insects because they can't smell them anymore. But also, fresh cattle dung has a community of bacteria. And a lot of those bacteria come out of the gut of the cow initially. And then as the pie ages, it's colonized by other types of bacteria. So bacteria that are environmental bacteria carried in by insects. And as the bacterial community changes, the chemical odors that come off the cow pies also change, which then start attracting different types of insects that might not come to a fresh pie, but they'll come to a pie that's maybe a week old. It's a, it's a complicated answer to a simple question. So I'll sum it up by saying different types of dung are attractive to different types of insects, but probably the same types of insects would still come into different types of dung. Just a relative abundance would change. With uh, swine dung, that's actually one of the most attractive types of dung uh, next to human dung. So omnivores. So if you were doing a study looking at uh, the diversity of dung beetles on a pasture somewhere, and you happen to have handy sheep dung, sorry, uh, swine dung or human dung, those would be your first choices as bait. But you can also use, you know, donkey, horse, sheep, cattle, what have you. Well, I'll admit, Kevin, I'm much more attracted to cow dung than to pig dung. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> the, the pig dung does not attract me very much. I'll dig through the cow one pretty quick, but that pig one is a little, a little harsh for me. Yeah, I muted it. Um, so I have a different type of dung beetle on horse manure. They're tiny little red ones. I don't know what they were, but they were definitely a different species I've seen. One of the advantages, you talk about the smell of it too, is what, what I learned years ago. The smell is actually, uh, it attracts the insects, but it actually repels themselves, right? So cattle don't like to graze around cattle manure, but sheep don't like to graze around sheep manure, but they're okay with the other's manure. I think it's a way nature has to stop in parasites from being reinfested, right? Mm -hmm. So the cow won't, won't graze around their own manure because that, that's their way of not having the, the insect or the, the parasites being reinfested into their system. And vice exactly. versa. So that's where that sometimes the advantage of having a, 
uh, multi-species grazing together because you'll have them uh, grazing away from the manure. So, Good point. Hmm, thanks a lot. Kevin, one of the things you mentioned was the community of insects that you find in a cow pat. How big a community are we talking on average? Yeah, so just to clarify this point, you know, we, we've mentioned a couple of times now that there's maybe 300 species of insects that we know of that breed in cattle dung in Canada. But if you were in southern Alberta or wherever you happen to be, and you looked at the insects in a fresh dung at one point in time in a pasture, you might get several dozen different species. And, you know, you'd probably get a few of your pest flies, horn fly, uh, face fly, uh, stable fly, perhaps. But those are really the tiny minority of insect species in cattle dung. The vast majority are either eating the eggs and larvae of pest flies, or they're tunneling in the dung to scatter it. Uh, maybe they're killing some of those uh, nematode and uh, infective stages of nematodes that have passed out of infected cattle into the pasture. Uh, they're digging tunnels to put that manure back underground. The tunnels that they dig also improve the uh, permeability of the soil to oxygen and to water, uh, in increases the permeability of the soil to the growth of, of new roots. So it really is a community where you have the basis of the food chain would be the bacteria in the fresh dung. And when the adult dung beetles are coming in, they're eating the bacteria. But the eggs that they leave behind in the pie produce larvae, and it's the dung beetle larvae that are feeding on the plant fiber. And they actually have specialized enzymes, uh, specialized bacteria in their hindgut that produce enzymes that break down plant fiber. So it's, it's kind of like the rumen of a cow, actually. It's, it's pretty cool. And then in addition to the dung beetles, you have things like predaceous beetles, uh, staphylinid beetles, uh, hyster beetles. They're feeding on the immature stages of pest flies and other insects. You actually have tiny wasps that are about the size of an aphid. And these are parasitoids of fly larvae and fly pupae. So they're in there laying their eggs on these immature stages of flies. They're another level of the food chain. And then over the course of the lifetime of the pie, from fresh time, uh, to the time it's fresh to the time it's fully broken down, that insect community will change. So as the pie gets older, it becomes more attractive to things that feed on fungal spores and hyphae. So there's you know, certain types of beetles that only eat fungus that will come into older pies. So it's, it's kind of complicated, but fun. Great. Lori, I see you have your hand up again first. Hi, yes, thanks. I don't know if I can ask another question, but um, I'm wondering about birds that are predator birds eating the, the beetles and the, the critters. Um, two, two questions is, if I put up birdhouses on my fence line, are they going to eat the dung beetles and work against me? And what about chickens? Because uh, I have chickens that go into where my corral is. is are they eating the dung beetles? So birds, uh, depending on the type of bird, but but chickens for sure would eat dung beetles. They would probably eat any kind of insect they can find in a in a pie, and they could be good for scattering pies on on pastures to accelerate the breakdown of the dung. Uh, things that you have in a bird box on a fence post, they would be eating probably things like some of the flies that are breeding in. And dung pats and you know in a in a dung pat maybe it's a a, kilo, um, a kilogram or a kilogram and a half you can get hundreds of insects developing in one cow pie so there's plenty of bugs out there and they're not just in your pasture there's not just bugs in cow pies there's bugs developing on the grass you know grasshoppers plant bugs all kinds of stuff so i don't think putting up birdhouses is going to have an appreciable effect on the health of the dung insect community in your pasture 
I've actually seen seen that. Um, I believe when I have maybe overbalanced, I always talk about balancing a system, right? If you if you're starting from a from scratch, you you start to balance a system, and all of a sudden you get dung beetles come in, but then all of a sudden I get cowbirds coming in. And then all of a sudden I notice my dung beetles dropping a little bit, right? So there's this balance of the system. If I have 10,000 cowbirds out there flying around with the herd, probably a good chance they're eating some of my dung beetles, right? Picking through there. And, and, and But it's a system, you know, um, it was developed under those, those conditions and that's how nature works. So I'm not afraid of that, right? If, uh, the next year, maybe I'll have fewer fewer cowbirds, and then my dung beetle population will come back up. But it's kind of this system that we got to balance all the time, for sure. We, I've got landowners who put up lots of birdhouses. Those birds usually stick around there. There's not that many. I mean, I got one landowner who probably has 50 birdhouses, right? The birds that they have there don't come close to the number of cowbirds that I have that follow the herd. So I'm not worried about birdhouses at all. Bats. Right? How many dung beetles do bats pick off in the in the evenings if they're still up flying? I don't know if dung beetles fly at night. Dragonflies, right? Okay, I've got hundreds and hundreds of dragonflies all the time. I'm developing breeding areas for dragonflies. They're a fantastic predator. But I saw a post here a while ago that said something about dragonflies have the highest percentage kill rate of any species on the planet. They're like 78% kill rate or something. I can't remember what it was. It was amazing. I'm assuming, maybe Dr. Float can help me out here, I'm assuming they're getting dung beetles too because they uh, are very agile flyers. So I wouldn't worry about birdhouses. There's so many other critters out there that are helping to balance the system. So, And if I can just build on that, Laurie, and you have to remember that, you know, you can have adult dung beetles flying around and they're mainly flying around in the springtime or the ones that are present in the springtime on your pastures as adults, in Canada anyway, they overwinter as an adult. And then they come out, they're attracted to fresh dung, they lay an egg. The new generation of adult dung beetles from the eggs laid in the spring, they usually emerge in the fall, like August, September. So in the middle of summer, you may not have a lot of adult dung beetles flying around, but you have a lot of beetle grubs in the cow pies that were deposited in the springtime. So those probably wouldn't be at much at risk. And coming back to one of the points that Steve mentioned, a lot of the dung beetles that we have only fly uh, in the daytime, but there, there are other species that only fly at the nighttime. So it's unlikely that all dung beetles are going to be at risk, you know, of being eaten at one point in time. Wait, you had another question. Yes, I was just uh, curious on uh, if there's any good common practices for increasing dung beetles and in insects. Yeah, so this is a, a really good question. So just to restate it so everyone hears the question, how can you increase numbers of dung beetles on your on your property, I, I think is the question. In some countries like Australia, they have introduced dung beetles and they have spread them around the country to, to increase local numbers of dung, be, uh, dung beetle species that are adapted for cattle dung. In Canada, we already have species of dung beetles adapted for uh, cattle dung, and they would have evolved on bison dung. So cattle and bison have similar types of dung. We also have a lot of species that have been accidentally introduced from Europe during European settlement that are present in Canada. So in terms of the dung beetle species that could survive in your area in Canada, they're probably already present. And if they're not present now, they will be shortly. For Southern Alberta, 
during my 30 years, I've seen a couple of dung beetle species move in that were present maybe in Ontario and Manitoba, and now they've made their way over to southern Alberta. To increase numbers of species that are already present, there are certain management practices. So the obvious one is, can we minimize the impact of parasiticide treatments? And I, I do not want to imply that you should not use parasiticides. That's very much a producer choice. If, if an animal needs to be treated, of course, uh, treat it. But some people, perhaps, they might feel they have to treat all the animals in a herd when they turn them out in the springtime. Is that necessary? I don't know. But it's something to think about. Or maybe there are different parasiticide products that are less toxic to dung insects. There's a couple of these on the market. So I think the best strategy to try and have healthy dung beetle populations on your property is to protect what you already have, sort of conservation. But in terms of bringing in new dung beetle species, I don't think that's practical because if you have species in southern U.S. that are good at breaking down dung and you're thinking of bringing them into Canada, they probably can't survive here. It's just too cold. The species that can survive here are probably already here. I, I don't know how much of a help that is, but something to think about. Yeah, I can add to that too a little bit, I guess. Yeah, uh, reduce use of chemicals, obviously, and that's not just the porons. It's chemicals in our whole environment. We we have to be aware of what else that affects. You stop cold turkey, you might be in for a wreck, right? You might have a whole bunch of culls. But there is, you know, there are animals in your herd that are more resistant to parasites than others. So if you, you know, stop using chemicals, you know, some of the good ones are going to show up and the bad ones are going to get culled. So it's going to be, uh, it, it could get expensive for you if it's on the wrong year. I, I always say that the best time to uh, uh, experiment with that is when prices are really good, right? When the cull prices are good. So you're going to get decent value for those animals that you got to cull. Find the ones that you know, are, are going down, treat them, feed them, and then get rid of that. Don't keep their heifers, right? The number one battle against, you know, dealing with parasites, in my opinion, is genetics. Get rid of the cows that are genetically, you know, unable to, to deal with that. Uh, number two to battle against it would be to proper nutrition. You keep the hormonal system of those cattle working properly, their immune system and their hormonal system, by giving them natural well, you know what they're designed to eat. Don't be giving them a bunch of other stuff that changes their system. And uh, they're going to be more resistant, right? It, in the case of uh, the easiest way to explain is in the case of lice, the hormonal system secretes oils into the hair, into the hair coat. If we mess up their hormonal system, then they're not secreting the oils and then they're very susceptible to lice. Keep them healthy, keep them strong, and, and that uh, uh, helps them be natural resistant to it. And of course, breaking the parasite cycle. I've done this numerous times. I've proved it. I've had customers that bring animals to me and they want to treat with, you know, some type of chemical right off the bat. And I say, no, 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 let's not. I don't want to. So we do a treatment or do a fecal sample at the end of the season. I say, I will deal with that with my rotation. My rotational grazing will break the parasite cycle. And a couple of times now we've done this at the end of the season. I've taken fecal samples and there's almost zero parasite eggs in the fecal samples because my rotation, because we give enough rest in between grazing those fields and removing those animals quick enough that we've broken the parasite cycle. So we don't need to use it in, in our situation. So yeah, just like I said, balancing that system, if you build it, they will come. Dung beetles fly, right? They're mobile. The bacteria and the fungus, right? That might be a little slower to move into your system if it's not there, but dung beetles, yeah, they fly. They'll, they'll be there. 
if you give them nice uh, <laughs> a nice food source, no preservatives or additives included, uh, they like that natural diet. So, I'm just gonna uh, jump in here, and just for context, I really appreciate your comments, Steve, because I'm not a cow guy; I'm a bug guy. So, so between the two of us, uh, we make a good team, I think. And in terms of movement of dung insects, this is coming back to Steve's point: dung beetles fly. You know, there's reports of tropical dung beetles, like one beetle flying kilometers. But normally in Canada on the prairies, one dung beetle might fly a few hundred meters. And they have to be strong flyers because they have to find fresh dung. Now, they can't walk. Their little legs are just too short to get anywhere. They're very strong flyers. This was a pretty good segue, I think, into Brian's question. Brian, if you want to unmute yourself. Hey, good evening, guys. My question is vitamins and additives and everything like that. We have mineral tub that has three compartments, so I make up three different minerals in it. One has um, Redmond salt and AD&E. One has Redmond salt and animal-grade copper, and then the other one has Redmond salt and animal-grade iodine in there. I think I'm under the impression that vitamin A helps for keeping lice and bugs out of the cattle. Is that correct? And or is there anything else that I could be adding to um, beef up this mix against lice and stuff like that? We just started this about a month ago or so. Steve, can I defer to you on that? Yes, you most certainly can. And I'm not going to be very helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't done it much experiments with that. I usually... You know, I'm a custom operator. I bring in whatever the customer wants, whether we're feeding mineral or we're feeding salt. I haven't had an issue. You know, if I'm giving, you know, minerals preferably, uh, I much prefer to give minerals to my cattle. I have lots of dung beetles around, and I've never really, you know, taken any extra precaution of what we're, we're giving them. So I think it's more the balance of the whole system. One one component's not going to change the whole, you know, change them. If we can balance the system, give the environment a chance to heal itself. Sometimes that's what we need is just to step out of the way and let the environment heal. And that's what brings in the, the different species of, uh, in the ecosystem. So I'm not a lot of help on that. I, I think, you know, what you're doing is good. That's great. What's lacking in your soil? What's lacking in your environment? I know in my environment, we're lacking uh, sulfur. That's a big one. And selenium. So I would, I definitely, when when my customer wants me to get salt, I go out and I make sure I get a sulfur block of salt and then a selenium block of salt because that's low in my environment. So are you low in copper and in iodine and things like that in your in your soils, in your plant tissue tests or, or what, what have you? So that's where I'd be aiming at. Um, I wouldn't be aiming directly at, you know, what do dung beetles like? I'd be aiming at what is my system need. Okay. Okay. I think we got the blend from somebody in the area who had done some experimenting, if I remember correctly, who has soil similar to ours, but that's as close as we could get at the time. So I have another question. If there isn't anybody else waiting with a question or a hand up. Go ahead and we'll move down the list after you. Okay. I actually have quite a few horses and it's uh, trying to balance the, the warmer when you've got horses in a small confined area and now what I'm learning about pasture health and trying to change that system any suggestions or thoughts on balancing the, the use of dewormers with the the betterment of the pastures and the pens that they're in or is it too far away from the grazing and the cattle 
So I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you, but for example... Oh, sorry. No, no, no I, I think I got the gist of it. So okay. you, you're talking about horses, of course, but uh, say for cattle in a pen situation, we don't normally worry too much about dung beetles for penned animals, just because of manure, the dung gets trampled very quickly and it's not suitable for supporting dung beetles. It's mainly for, say, horse droppings or cattle dung on, grass, uh, on grassland pastures that we, we worry about protecting the dung beetles. But if you treat your horses in a pen situation and then you put them out on pasture, of course, there's going to be chemical residue in, in their droppings, which could affect the, uh, uh, the dung beetle populations. And I don't know any way around that other than treat the animals if you need to, need to treat them, but just be sure you need to treat them in the first place. And if you have to treat them, uh, some products may be more toxic to insects than other products. Ivermectin is very effective for doing what it's advertised to do, but it is one of the more insecticidal products for dung beetles. Yeah, my question, Kevin, always has been uh, asked, what else does it do? You know, what? Yes. you got a new product, someone, there's a salesman trying to sell you something. Yes, I, I believe them that it'll do what they say it's gonna do, but my question is what else will it do? So for the horse, uh, you know, treating your horses. I mean, I know that's a very common thing. Vets will hammer on you about that all the time. Uh, again, I go back to genetics, right? I've got a donkey who's never been treated in his life. He does fine. He's fat. Have we genetically changed the horse so much that it absolutely can't survive without any chemicals? Or can we pick some that, that can, right? Um, yeah, if they got them in a pen, you're, there's no sense. There's there's no dung beetles are going to come to that area. So get them out on pasture, start spreading them around, and maybe test them. Are they actually in need of that? I the vets make you do it. You know what? Every what three times a year. I'm very fortunate. My vet is really progressive. I actually haven't dewormed my horse as much in the last couple of years. So very fortunate that way. And not that I say that too loudly because, like you said, a lot of vets will hammer right on you. We've done fecal counts trying to figure out exactly how much we actually need to deworm to make sure that they're still healthy. Because I also don't have colic surgery options very close by. So, um, but that's interesting. No, so I guess from gathering from what you said earlier, my best bet would be to do my deworming in the fall and winter where they're up in dry lots. And then when they do get out onto the grassy areas in the spring and summer, I have less chance of having residue out there. Exactly. So, thank you. I find it entertaining that some people have you know, so much issues trying to keep their horses from getting fat or like they're, they're too fat. My horse, I got to feed them, uh, you know, I got to feed them less and be careful what they feed, eat. And well, just let them have some parasites. They won't get that fat. <laughs> well, unfortunately, most of it, I remember reading somewhere that talked about how grass is the highest sugar content when it's like three to four inches high or something like that. And that's was for a long time taught. That's when you should be training your horses out. And then the other factor is, uh, their small intestines are not at all like people's and they don't pull protein out in their small intestine like hum- humans do. And a lot of feeds are designed around human physiology, not equine. So it's interesting when you get into what we've learned now about their feeding systems and metabolic issues and stuff like that. And just how much more they need to move in a day. They should move. I think it's like 15 to 20 kilometers a day. Horses naturally with tracker systems, that's what they've found. And most horses in confinement move like less than six off topic. Sorry about that. <laughs> There's another question here from uh, D. Tim who said, 
So do insects follow cattle when rotating or do they starve if ongoing fresh patties are not close by and making it hard to maintain their populations? A really good question. The answer is the uh, insects that uh, breed in fresh cattle dung, they're all strong flyers. So if you have two adjacent pastures and one of them has cattle in for a month or a week, and then you move those animals into the other pasture, the adult insects will find their way no problem. It's not a concern. And if you think back before we had cattle, we had bison. And these herds of bison, they'd move through an area, but they might only do that every few years. But we always had healthy uh, populations of, of native dung beetles, so it, it wasn't an issue. There's a couple of additional comments here in the in the chat, not really questions, but uh, one comment from Dean that his cow herd has been chemical free for four years, being attributed to a diverse diet because diversity of plants is more powerful than supplements. And Ron commented that he doesn't pen his horses anymore. He rotates them through small pastures and doesn't bring them back to that pasture for at least 60 days. So just some confirmation of of what you guys have been saying. Steve, you mentioned in a chat that you maybe had another question. I wanted to uh, let everybody else have questions first, but I got a question for Kevin. Do you know uh, the details or the life cycle and things of the hairy rove beetle? I've seen him around the dung pats lots. He's just the most entertaining critter that I, I have on my ranch. Uh, him and the red velvet mite, I like him too. But that... Uh, Harry Rove Beetle, he looks pretty cool when he's flying around. He looks like a helicopter. His butt curls up and like a scorpion, and he flies around. He just looks he looks vicious to me. I like like him. <laughs> These are actually real insects. Uh, Steve's not making them up. <laughs> uh, for those of you who've spent any time with your, your nose in a cow pie and looked really close, you'll see um, – they're a beetle, but they look a little bit like an, a snake. You know, they have a long, snaky body, and those are called rove beetles. And there's many different species of rove beetles. The, the hairy rove beetle that you mentioned, Steve, is one of the biggest species of rove beetles in Canada. And they're mainly coming into uh, fresh cow pies to eat other insects, including adult dung beetles. I normally see them not so much on my area where it's dry prairie, but certainly close to the foothills with a bit, a bit more moisture. They're very common. And they're just one of probably 20 or 30 different species of rove beetles that occur in cattle dung in Canada. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I like them. I see them quite a bit up here, though. Like I, every summer, I see quite a few. So I, I know I got quite a population of them. The yeah. other one you already mentioned, actually, which I kind of blew me away years ago, is that uh, parasitic wasp. I know there's quite a few different uh, species of that, too. But they come in, uh, you mentioned it, but they come in and they they sting the fly larvae deposit their own larvae inside the fly larvae and they they devour the fly larvae. So what we get is the flies are important. The fly larvae is eating the manure, which we need the manure to decompose. The parasitic wasp larvae comes in and eats the fly larvae. So we don't get a whole bunch of, you know, adult flies developed out of it. And, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. But we have to make sure we keep the, the system balanced so that that parasitic wasp is part of our system. So can you go more detail in on that for us? I'm actually really glad you mentioned that. I was going to circle back to that, actually. So we've talked a lot about insects on pastures, uh, which include some of these parasitic wasps. Again, these are the size of an aphid. You probably wouldn't even notice them. They're not going to sting you. They're not going to hurt any pets or children or anything. 
And yes, they help control pest flies in uh, cattle dung, but there's actually species of parasitic wasps that have been mass produced and commercialized for sale to control pest flies in livestock confinements, feedlots, but also dairy barns, poultry houses, wine barns. And some people might've been from Brian's question, keeping horses in pens. So if you don't want to use chemicals around your horses, and the main concern is protecting them from pest flies, parasitic wasps in a pen environment might be an option for you. And the people that mass produce these parasitic wasps, they're mainly based in California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, and then they ship up into Canada. And the wasps do not breed as fast as the flies. So when I'm talking about flies in a, in a pen environment, like a feedlot, it's mainly stable fly and house flies. Horn fly and face flies are on pastures, but face fly and stable fly would be breeding in not just fresh dung, but any kind of rotting organic material. So manure, rotting bales of uh, hay, uh, the base of silage pits. So for those people who do not want to use chemicals around their animals in a pen environment, these parasitic wasps might be an option but they're really not useful in a pasture environment because the cattle dung is scattered all over you know, acres and the parasites are really tiny. They really have trouble getting from pie to pie to find pest flies to lay their eggs in. So that's kind of an option for non-chemical control, not in a pasture, but in a pen environment. I, I touch on this a little bit in this Cow Patty Critters book. I have, I have a section at the end on parasitic wasps. Calvin, you have a question. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask? Good evening, everyone. Does the diversity of dung beetles vary and follow climatic patterns? An example, light brown soil zone, um, soil zone versus black soil zone bug populations. Yeah, so a couple, I'm just going to pull that apart a little bit. So if we think about climate, there are species that are definitely warm adapted species in the southern U.S., the central U.S., that don't get up into Canada. And there are species that are adapted for our colder Canadian climate that don't get down to Texas. And some of the dung beetles, for example, in order for them to complete their life cycle, in, they have to go through a cold period. So these are species um, adapted for northern North America, like Canada, but also uh, Europe. They have to go through a winter period to complete their life cycle. Those species do not get into the southern U.S. because it's not cold enough for them. And then there's other species in the southern U.S. that do not need a cold period, but they can't survive our cold winters. So in terms of climate, yes, dung beetle species will differ. In terms of soil type in the same climate, that can have an effect on the dung beetles. So we talked a little bit about the rollers and the tunnelers and the dwellers. Again, a reminder, the dwellers develop from egg to adult in the pie where it sits on the soil surface. The tunnelers and the rollers, the adults will physically remove little bits of dung, form it into a ball, and then bury it underground. So some of the tunnelers like sandier soils, lighter soils. You don't find them as often in the heavy clay soils because it's harder for them to dig. So soil type can be a factor affecting the relative abundance of dung beetles that might be present in your area. Climate will definitely have a huge effect on what species you can find in your region. Okay, Kevin, I'm going to make you expand a little bit more on that, add a question to it maybe. What about a drought year versus a wet year? How is that going to affect mm. your system in the same environment? Yeah, uh, good question. So dwellers, they will overwinter 
in the cow pie or just below the cow pie above the soil surface, if you have a really harsh winter, more of those adult dwellers will die. It's just too harsh for them. They ideally would want some sort of snow cover, some kind of insulation to protect them. For the rollers and the tunnelers, they can somewhat adjust. So if it's very dry, they can dig their tunnels down deeper to where the soil's moisture. Or if it's in a, an area where there's been a lot of rain, they just don't dig their tunnels as deep. They don't need to. So they can sort of determine how deep they go depending on the moisture at the time they're digging their tunnels. But if they've dug their tunnels and the larvae are developing underground, a heavy rain in the spring might cause the emergence of all the, the, the new adults. Or if there's no rain, they may just delay emergence. And, and they're going to wait till it, that rain comes. Often that's what we see in places, uh, Africa, for example, where it's not so much the ending of winter, it's the onset of rains, which signals it's time for these new adult beetles to emerge out of the ground and look for fresh cow pies. The interesting part I really got out of that is the frost. If we can leave enough residue, and I talk about this for grazing purposes, leaving enough residue to hold onto the surface to capture some snow and create an insulation, then our frost doesn't go so deep. So that's actually also benefiting our dung beetles because they're going to overwinter better if we you know, compared to having no residue, the snow blows away and our frost goes three feet deep or four feet deep. Exactly. Interesting. Very interesting. There is a question from the Frenches. They're in northern Montana, just south of Malta, and they have an orange fly that they see on cow pies a lot. Are they eating the dung or other insects? I might have a suspicion what that fly is. There is a common fly called the yellow dung fly, which could be mistaken for orange. It's very common across the U.S., actually. They're very cool. I like them because, first of all, they're fuzzy. And um, I like them also because the adult flies are predators. They actually will seize other little flies out of the air and grab them and then the yellow dung fly will stick its mouth parts in the neck of the fly they've caught and suck out the juice, kind of like little vampires. We used to have a colony of yellow dung flies in the lab, and we'd feed them adult house flies. And it was amazing to watch these little critters in action. The yellow dung fly is one of the most commonly studied dung insects worldwide, partly because of that interesting behavior. That is really cool. Dave just fly. posted a, a picture in the chat for any of you who aren't looking. Is this the fly? <laughs> That's the fly. Very cool. Little vampires. I love that. There's a new <laughs> speaking point for me. A common question that I always get, Kevin, is uh, the different types of parasite controls, right? We've talked about Ivamex so far. What else? You said that there's different potencies. Some are stronger, some are, you know, you know can you add to any of that? Yeah, so this is a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but I will comment on what I know. So there's different parasiticides. I've mainly worked on a group of parasiticides called uh, indecticides. These would include ivermectin, iprinomectin, moxidectin, doramectin. And they're indecticides because they're effective against both internal and external parasites. So they would include internal parasites like nematodes and cattle grub, but also external parasites like uh, lice, for example. And when I started my career 
ivermectin had been on the market for about well, roughly 10 years. And since then, of course, we have these other indecticide products on the market in different formulations. The newest formulation that I'm aware of is this long-range formulation, which is fascinating to me. Uh, if you haven't heard of uh, long-range Epronex, the active ingredients dissolved in two different types of solvents. So when you inject your animal, the first solvent dissolves quickly, releases an initial pulse of epronomectin into the animal to control the parasite. And then about 12 weeks later, the second solvent dissolves much more slowly. When it dissolves, it releases a second pulse of epronomectin into the animal. So it provides a very long range of protection for cattle on pasture. But with different formulations and different chemicals, there's different implications for toxicity. So some of you may remember something called the sustained release bolus, SR bolus for Ivermec, which was on the market for a brief period of time, and it was taken off the market. I think it was just too expensive for, for cattlemen to use, but it was quite toxic to insects. It released chemical residues into the dung of cattle for about 150 days. For other types of parasiticides that are not indecticides, like fembendazole, it's not targeting insects, so it's really not insecticidal. It might be targeting other types of parasites in the cattle, but not insects. So it really depends a little bit on the chemical class of parasiticide uh, and the formulation, and of course, what time of year you're using it. So for cattle going into a feedlot, it might be automatic that they be treated with ivermectin. That's not a concern at all for the pasture situation, because for those cattle that might be turned back out onto pasture in the spring, the residue uh, has almost disappeared in, in the dung of those animals. The one question I get quite often is spot on. Do you know anything about spot on? I don't. Do you know the technical name for the product or the active ingredient? I just looked it up here. Delta metherin? Yeah, so delta metherin is an insecticide. Okay, so it'll be similar. Well, here's the thing, though. Uh, what's important is whether or not the chemical you apply to your cow gets out in the dung. And some of these chemicals, when they pass through the animal, they degrade. So the active ingredient breaks down, and it might not be as toxic to insects that colonize dung of the treated animal. Or some chemicals aren't excreted in the dung. They might be excreted primarily in the urine. So it's really sort of a case-by-case -case basis. And that's where we depend on guys like you to do experiments, because when you get the bottle, it tells you there's a, whatever, 35, 45-day withdrawal period, but then you can detect stuff three months later. So the withdrawal period, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to believe, because that's a sales pitch, you know, what they're testing compared to what a bacteria tests. So... It comes down to we need more experiments. We need more testing. I'm trying to get you some more funding, Kevin. That's what I'm trying right now, right? <laughs> well, it's very kind of you, but not necessary. And I do want to caution a little bit. So if you read something on the label claim, that's really been checked out by the regulatory authorities. So I know some of these withdrawal periods might be for things that uh, lactating dairy cattle, for example. You know, they don't want using certain chemicals where the residues might get into the milk. So I think in terms of the label claim, yes, for sure. Believe that in terms of using it to control a pest. But you're right, Steve, a lot of the non-pest insects are much more sensitive to the chemical residues in dung. And that's not something chemical companies normally have to test for when they register their product for the market. Yeah, that makes sense. And like I said at the bit earlier on, uh, what else does it do? Right? Exactly. I'm kind of 
I'm trying to balance my whole system. You know, if my uh, red velvet mite dies because I did something, I'm I'm going to be really upset. He he's an mm-hmm. awesome little critter. So, and I see Ward has a comment in the chat. So a dung beetle walks into a bar. The bartender looks at him and says, "Hey, buddy, pull up a stool." Yeah, dung beetles uh, are the butt end of a lot of bad puns. <laughs> My best joke for the dung beetles, I always show it in my, in my schools, is the dung beetle drive through He pulls up and orders a number two meal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that when I was going out to pastures and showing kids uh, what was going on in a cow patty, one of my friends started calling me the, uh, the Pied Piper of Pooh, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, I've been the dung beetle guy quite a few times, so. I remember uh, one time I had one of my big customers, uh, big as in he's, he sent me 800 head of cattle. I uh, came up to my place one time. He was, you know, coming to look at the cattle. So a pretty big customer. I got to treat him right. Drive out into the pasture. And I got my daughter sitting beside me. She was probably seven at the time. You know, she's sitting in the middle. And we jump out of the vehicle to look at his cattle. I jump out the driver's side. Him and my daughter jump out the passenger side. By the time I got around the truck, she was already showing him the dung beetles in the dung pats, right? He's, she had him down on his knees looking in the dung pat. So I was pretty proud of her for that. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I think a lot of people, well, I, I choose to believe a lot of people are really interested about insects and dung, but they just don't want other people to see them poking in cow pies. And I think if you're with a group of people that don't, if they break through that social barrier and start poking in pies, you can have a lot of great conversations. But hopefully you're either using a trowel or gloves or something. Um, I usually do. That's what pasture sticks are for. There you go. There is a question from Rob. If you'd like to unmute yourself, Rob. Uh, I live in North Central, North Dakota. And uh, I've gained a lot more dung beetles. I quit worming cows 10 years ago. And when I start, when I quit worming sheep about seven, my dung beetle population just exploded. I have all three kinds, but the, the dwellers, they, they emerge like early May, and then they disappear by mid-June. I'm just wondering, how long do the rollers and tunnelers live? I, I see them quite often, but then I won't see them for a while. And I was just wondering, how long do they survive during the year? Because the dwellers will come back, and I mean they'll start coming back in August, but, but I was just wondering about them. So this is uh, uh, present information on the typical life cycle of the dung beetles. So in your area, most of your dung beetle species are overwintering as adult beetles. They come out in the springtime. They will feed in fresh dung. They'll mate, they'll lay eggs. And then those overwintered adult beetles will maybe stick around for June. And then maybe, I'm guessing, probably the early part of July, the numbers drop off. But meanwhile, the eggs that they laid back in May have become beetle grubs. And those beetle grubs have developed into a new generation of adults. But the new generation of adult beetles does not start to emerge until at the earliest, probably August. It depends a little bit on the species. So we have a very common um, tunneler. It's, I'm sure it's present in your area. It's sort of uh, brown with black markings, has a little tiny horn. The new generation of adults starts turning up in the middle of August. And by the middle of September, you don't see it anymore. And then we have another dung beetle species that overwinters as an adult. But the new generation of adults in our area for this other dung beetle species, they don't start really peaking until October. And we get them into December in our area, depending how warm it is. So you get normally two pulses of adults, the overwintered adults in the spring, and then their 
adult offspring, which emerge in the fall of the same year. So a dung beetle from egg to adult will live for about uh, a year, roughly. In the tropics, you might have some dung beetle species that might live for a couple years, but in our area, it's mainly one year. There are some dung beetle species that might have two generations a year if it's warm enough in, say, the central southern U.S. I have I just have a comment also. Uh, you're talking about the old dung. This, like June, I was in a pasture that I had grazed in December. And I was just kind of digging through the dung. I'm kind of a nut like you are. And anyways, and there was ants. Ants had completely hollowed out this dung pat and, and buried it all. Now, if I would have poured in December, there wouldn't I, I wouldn't add any ants. So I just I'm just saying that you know it's kind of neat that they're still working even though it's dried up dung. I'm really glad you mentioned that. We tend to focus on so when I talk about dung insects, I'm normally talking about insects that really are attracted to fresh dung. But you're absolutely right. There's another group of insects that use dung, not because it's dung, but just it's a convenient pile of organic material. Ants are really important in degrading cattle dung. In the tropics, termites are really important in breaking down uh, cattle dung. In Europe, earthworms are really important in breaking down cattle dung. But in Canada, and I'm guessing probably in North Dakota, at least on the dry prairies, we don't have a lot of earthworms. So most of the biological activity breaking down cow pies in our area would be dung insects, mainly most common in the spring. But there's other insects, like you mentioned, ants, that can get into an old cow pie and break it down as well. Thank you. We've got lots of earthworms, Kevin, if you want to come out and check. <laughs> I, I think you'd have more soil moisture than we do in southern Alberta. Yeah. We're not supposed to have them either, but uh, I dug a shovel full a couple of years ago, did a couple of them, counted on, on average about three earthworms per shovel full, multiply that over the 3,500 acres that I have, and I figured I'd have about 2.7 million earthworms or something that I manage. They're one of my mm. my livestock. So, <laughs> and they're not supposed to be here either, but we're building soil. So, yeah, count yourself lucky. That's, that's really handy to have. French has had another question. I've heard that dung beetles are maternal and stay in the pat to guard their eggs. How true is this? And if it is true, how does it impact the number of beetles that actually follow the herd? I really love these questions. So we talked about dwellers, rollers, and tunnelers. The tunnelers and the rollers, they do work as male-female pairs. And some dung beetle species will stay behind to guard the little dung ball that's uh, buried underground with an egg in it. And the reason they do this is because there's another type of dung beetle we haven't talked about before, and they're sort of like dung parasites. And rather than do the work of forming a ball themselves and you know putting it underground, they will actually just sit on top of a ball that another species of dung beetle has formed, and then they will... Um, take advantage of the, of the buried dung that the other species has buried. So some dung beetle species will guard against these dung beetle parasites. Uh, there's also insects that will eat the uh, eggs and the newly hatched larvae of dung beetles in these tunnels. So when the adults stay behind to guard, they can also be protecting their brood from some of these predaceous insects as well. But we don't normally see that for the dwellers, mainly for things like the tunnelers and the rollers, which have a more evolved sort of uh, reproductive life cycle. 
Yeah, dung beetles are actually a pretty amazing critter. I actually have a bit of trivia for everybody. The dung beetle is actually the strongest critter on the planet. There's some species of dung beetles that can move over 1,100 times their own body weight. 1,100 times. Uh, second place, the second strongest critter on the planet goes to the leafcutter ant. He can move 50 times his own body weight. So he's a lightweight in comparison. Dung beetles are by far the strongest. Nobody comes close to them. And, and just to add to that, so we talked about some of the, the rollers that we have here in southern Alberta. They'd be in the, the northern tier states like Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. The common roller that we have in our area, the male and female, when they form a ball of dung, it's probably close to the size of the last joint on your little finger. And then if you have one cow pie, there may be a dozen or more pairs of these rollers working on that one cow pie. You begin to understand how quickly they can spread apart a cow pie, perhaps in just a few days, depending on how many beetles are present. Oh, and then have the birds pick through them too, right? As soon as the birds start going after the fly larvae and, and everything else, boy, that dung pack can just get ripped apart pretty quick. Exactly. And, and Dave has posted a lovely photograph of a cow pie that's been flipped. It does my heart good because just from what I can see in that little photograph, I can see uh, tunnels and it looks like there's been a lot of activity, a lot of biological activity. That's really good to see. Yeah, you were mentioning earlier about how they, they have their, their life cycle during the summer. Detrimental to a good pasture walk in July, though. Because you you go out there in July, you want to show everything, and then you, you in June and you know end of May, you just saw tons of dung beetles out there, and you're so proud of your dung pats. And then July comes along, and you go out and show everybody, and there's hardly any dung beetles in the dung pat. So, uh, if you're planning a pasture walk and you want to show dung beetles, uh, now I've never not found any. Just so you know, I've always found some dung beetles, but in you know middle of July, uh, not as many out there. So don't be too. Uh, disappointed if you don't see him in in july so steve you're one of the people i wrote this book for then because one of the things i tried to emphasize in the book is that it's not all about dung beetles in the cow pie you know in in alberta there's maybe um i would guess roughly 10 to 15 common dung beetle species depending where you are but there's many more other species of insects that are in cow pies even in july and like i said the bacteria the fungus all the other earthworms, right? They're all helping me with, with dung pats. Last year was an interesting year. We had a bale grazing study. So we put bale grazing out there in the wintertime, lots of manure, lots of leftover hay. That spring, mushrooms just bloomed like crazy. Every cow pat, so there's 150 plus cows out there for, I don't know, two months. So it was covered in cow pats probably at least 20 mushrooms per cow patty it was just like it was these little white flowers everywhere and you got closer to them there's these tiny little mushrooms and they were just going crazy so that was the dried manure that the fungus was decomposing really neat to see that to you i just want to add to that so i've had the same experience when i do my research with chemical residues and dung we will have treated cattle and untreated cattle we collect dung from the true groups of animals and then we we leave it in the pasture so insects can get in. And then we put the two types of patties with and without chemical residue in buckets. And then we just hold them to see what develops in the dung. And in pies with chemical residues that have lower levels of insect activity, that's where we find all of our mushrooms and toadstools growing. Because you don't have that insect activity 
sort of drying out the pie, getting, digging tunnels, you know, get aerating the pat. So it's similar to what you're finding. Without insects, you tend to have more mushrooms and toadstools. There's another question here in the chat from Dave. Okay, sorry for my English. It's still it's still in the learning progress. So I'm uh, working. Um, I was uh, managing a dairy herd, mainly uh, bread heifers and um, dry cows in Montreal uh, for the McGill University, and um, I was walking around the pastures uh, and I was taking pictures uh, almost every day and uh, I, I take the winter to try to figure out or understand what was happening in the fields and in early November the last pictures I've posted uh, in the in the chat room I've seen so many of these tunnels and um, at the top of the fields. Uh, I guess, I, I don't know the word in English, but in French, it's souris, um, mice, uh, kind of, of mice uh, that make that tunnels. I was wondering if it's, because there are so many of them everywhere in the pasture. I was wondering if it's good or not to have so many of these. So I'm I'm looking at your photograph now, and your English is fine. That's not a problem. So these are tunnels that were formed during the winter months, and you're seeing them when the snow melts. No, it's not in the winter months uh, because uh, the the snow is uh, in, hasn't arrived yet. So we don't have any snow okay. right now. Usually, because uh, I used to manage uh, pastures in the past in my home barn. But uh, I haven't seen so many of those tunnels. But I was very confused when I when I've seen them in the fields. There are so many. I I, I like biological. You know, I like to see, you know, um, the, the 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 life in the pastures. But I was concerned uh, about is it too much? Because we, we are close to cities and. Uh, and that field is right next to Highway 20, and uh, I just and I don't see. I've never seen them in the fields. I've only seen the tunnels late uh, fall, in late fall, not during early fall, only late fall. And they dig a lot of uh, earth, of soil. They dig a lot of soil. I'm not sure I can answer your question. I see. So I don't think these are insect-related. Uh, I'm guessing a small rodent, you know, like a shrew or a vole. We do That's what I, I was going to guess, Kevin. Yeah. I was going to say probably a mole or something. It's kind of hard to see in the picture. Usually they, the moles come up in little piles, not necessarily, you know, long tunnels, but could be a rodent is what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. The good thing about having moles, though, in your property, I mean, everybody hates them in their hay field because it makes it rough. But what I was told years ago is if you have moles coming up in your in your property, that means they're feeding on earthworms, which means you have a lot of earthworms. So that, that's a good thing for your land. Because yeah. I've, I've seen so many cast, uh, 
Is it cast warm uh, warm castings? Yeah, warm yeah. castings. I've seen so many of these uh, everywhere in my pasture. So that, that that was a that was good for me to see this, but I was wondering because of the the tunnels. Uh, I don't know the 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 real word in English, but uh, in French, but I guess it's kind of a, a mice. But I'm wondering if it's too many of it, because it uh, cuts the, the the roots of uh, of the superficial uh, uh, the superficial roots. It cuts everything. So, so for things like voles and shrews, they sort of um, I guess at really high densities in a pasture, if it's affecting productivity of the pasture, that is too much. But as Steve said, you've got a lot of earthworms in there, which is great. I guess you know. Hopefully, you've got things like raptors or you know some. A predatory bird coming in and helping reduce those uh, mice and shrew and vole populations. That would be my guess. So it's some kind of a small rodent. And I'm not sure what you can do about it other than rely on uh, nature to help control the population. I would say it's a balancing again of the system. You've got lots of, out here we get lots of gophers that, you know, they get too numerous and they're starting to cause problems with the pasture. We put up raptor perches. So voles and moles, though, they, they move mostly at night. So how do you encourage, let's say, I'm just going to guess here, owls, right? How do you encourage owls in your environment? Do, did we bulldoze all the trees down and now there's no habitat for owls and raptor birds and stuff? So it's, again, looking back at, you know, maybe it's not nothing you did. Maybe it's something that the last generation did. What has caused the system to become unbalanced, right? You know, I, like I said, I get pretty rough pastures out there because of moles but it doesn't really affect my production very much right we've got some some uh, really good pastures out there but they're bumpy because of, of moles but yeah it's again what's the system you know how do you balance that system to re-equalize it i just want to make one last point and and dave uh just so you know that book cow patty critters it was published in both english and french so if you want to download a french copy it's online Thanks a lot. Yep. Well, Steve, it looks like we are just about at the end of our questions. So as is tradition at the end of these evenings, before we shut off the recordings, I am going to ask if there are any final thoughts from yourself or from Kevin or both of you. We'll wrap it up and we will turn off the recording and people are welcome to stay and chat and visit a little bit longer if they wish. Excellent. Thank you, Stacy. I would just like to, you know, kind of follow up a little bit. Really important to keep our systems healthy, keep our environments in, you know, natural as possible state. I know we're in agriculture and we've got all this different different reasons why we're doing different practices, but we always got to think, you know, what what else is it doing? You know, even even tillage, right? Tillage is not good for a whole bunch of my critters. Chemicals aren't good for a whole bunch of my critters. I'm not saying you can never use any of those things, right? A lot of the advantage we have in our ecosystems is that the the critters, the dung beetles, the bacteria, they're very prolific. They reproduce very quickly. So once in a while, doing a, a practice that is detrimental to them isn't going to totally eradicate your populations as long as you're nice to it for most of the time, right? Uh, I remember hearing a a phrase about if you're going to do one negative practice, do two positive ones in in the same time. So trying to keep that system in balance and trying to keep it as natural as possible, I think, is the goal that we need to have. You don't have to go completely organic, right? I'm not saying that, but trying to keep these systems balanced and and working as natural as possible is is a goal of mine on my ranch for sure. So it's not a recipe. 
right? You, what happens on my ranch might not work on your ranch, but we got to kind of observe and, you know, uh, the fact that Dave was looking and seeing those those little mole piles or, or little tunnels. That's great because now you can start to think about it and, you know, how, how do we deal with that, that system? Now, observation is one of the most powerful tools we have on the ranch and being able to, to understand what's going on and 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 have lots of nerds, right? You got to get out there. There's lots of Facebook. There's lots of online stuff now where you can get help from, you know, <laughs> be careful where you're getting help from sometimes. But uh, um, there's lots of ways to get information nowadays compared to 20 years ago when I was trying to find out what a hairy rope beetle was. Um, this is a lot easier now to, to figure that out. So really like to thank uh, Dr. Kevin Float again. Uh, he's been on here once before and his last one was so popular. We had to get him back. People just love digging into this stuff, Kevin. Uh, grateful for you. And uh, do you have any final words for the night? Any advice or comments? Just a reminder, again, a lot of the questions that were brought up tonight are answered as best I can in this book, Cow Patty Critters. If you just do an internet search on that phrase, you can find the book to download for free in English or in French. I, I'm not a rancher. I don't come from a cattle background. I'm a, I'm a bug nerd. I'm proud of it. But we're working on a second edition. So if any of you see misinformation or information you'd like to see added to a second edition of Cow Patty Critters, just send me an email. You can find my email address just by typing in, uh, or probably Kevin Dung and float, and, you, and you'd find my email address, I'm sure, online. Thanks very much. And I am going to shut the recording off. People are welcome to turn on their microphones and their cameras and carry on the conversation. Mm-hmm.